place at Canterbury. So, day three of session. The title of this talk is Discovering the Obvious. And I want to begin by saying that I um, met a Zen master yesterday and his name is Zen master um, Wooly Wagtail. And while I was giving Daisan over there, um, he came to the window and uh, he's a beautiful little bird about that big and he's got um, turquoise, blue turquoise feathers on the upper part of his body in this sort of deep um, rich grey feathers on the bottom part and he's very perky you know and very very deliberate quick sharp movements you know full of energy so it's kind of like a work of art you know it looks so so beautiful and so full of energy and vitality and um, he kept coming to the window and tapping on the window with his feet tap 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 <coughs> And uh, he didn't just do it once, he went away and then he came back again, tap, 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 tap. He kept doing this, maybe over two or three dasans, he kept coming back to the window. And uh, he was, he was a, a great teacher because he was, he was saying, tap, tap, just this, just this, wake up, wake up. You people talking in there, wake up. Uh-huh. Don't listen to that dumbass teacher in there, that human being. You know, too many words, you know, too psychological. Tap, tap, you know, <laughs> tap, tap. Just this. Don't listen to him. Tap, tap. Right? And he kept coming back over and over again to do it. Right? Good. Um, Robert Aitken um, once wrote a, an essay called Herald Birds. And Herald, as in Sydney Morning Herald, like a messenger. A herald is a messenger. And so messenger birds, there's messenger birds all over here, but one came right up to the window and gave his message yesterday. Tap, tap. Right? That's all. Cuts through everything. Now, Zen literature is full of um, many examples um, of teachers um, doing something over and over again sometimes as a... As a uh, skillful means to wake people up. So there's the story of, of Gute, and whenever someone came to Gute with a question like, why did Bodhidharma come from the West, or what is Buddha, or what's the meaning of life, do you know, whatever, he put up his finger. Huh? Just this. Just this. Uh-huh. Tap, tap. Just this. Same message. Huh? Um, there was another Zen teacher. Uh, whenever anyone came and asked him a question or getting to speak about the Dharma, he just turned around and faced the wall and do zazen. Right? Whoever came, just turn, face the wall, do zazen. This is how you do it. This is it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just cutting through all the conceptual stuff. Many other, other um, variations on that. Um, another one is... Uh, uh, Bodhidharma putting the mind at rest. You know, a man comes to Bodhidharma in the cave and says, um, uh, I cannot put my mind to rest. Can, can you put my mind to rest for me? And he said, I've been searching for it everywhere and cannot find it. 
And so Bodhidharma says to him, bring me your mind and I'll put it to rest. And he says, I cannot find it everywhere. And it came to rest. Uh And to follow on from our talk yesterday, you know, having a head on top of your head, a head searching for a head, you know, a mind searching for a mind just goes around in a loop, goes around in a circle. And we never find rest, we never find the answer in that samsara all the time looking for something when it's been there all the time. Mm-hmm. That's the nature of our practice. I'll give it, while we're talking about taps on window panes too, I'll just read to you a, a column which resonates with the um, Willy Wagtail Zen Master experience as well. It's called A Talk by the Monk of the Third Seat. Master Gyozan had a dream. He went to Maitreya's place and was given the third seat. A venerable monk there struck the table with a gavel and announced, Today the talk will be given by the monk of the third seat. Gyozan struck the table with the gavel and said, The Dharma of Mahayana goes beyond the four propositions and transcends the 100 negations. Listen carefully. If you take up cones, you will be asked to give a response, give your own realisation or understanding of that story. Um, I've heard some teachers say, some Zen teachers say that koans aren't there to um, trap you. you know, and uh, I don't think that's true. I think they are designed to trap you. And the way koans work, it's like the teacher throws out a conceptual net and your task is to not get caught in the net. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a challenge. See if you get caught in this conceptual net. And if you're awake and you're really clear and you're present, um, then you won't get caught in the net. But if you're clouded by concepts and you're living in that conceptual world, then you'll get caught in the net until you realise how to get out of that net. And one particular koan which really um, embodies that sense of working with koans is the goose in the bottle. And the story of the goose in the bottle is as a baby goose was put into a bottle and it grew up. But it, but it grew so big that it couldn't get out of the bottle anymore. So the question is, how does the goose get out of the bottle without breaking the bottle? Mm-hmm. It's a good car. Mm-hmm. And if you're stuck with that car, then it sort of indicates you, you can, you're stuck in the, the hypnotic power of concepts. Right? But if you, if you wake up, you'll, you'll know how to respond to that, that koan very, very clearly. Now, let's return to um, the great words from Hakuan that we recite during the session. These words I just find so poignant and they, they always touch me um, every time I read them. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. 
like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst, like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Lost on dark paths of ignorance, we wander through the six worlds. When shall we be freed from birth and death? It's so poignant, those words. They really touch the essence of what our practice is, that we, we search for truth afar when it's so near. It's a tap-tapping of the willy wagtail on the, on, on the window pane. Mm-hmm. Just floorboards, candles. Mm-hmm. To remind you of what the six worlds are that we get lost in, in ignorance. Um, the God realm, which is a kind of a narcissistic realm of kind of wealth and entitlement. Um, then there's the, uh, the fighting demons realm, um, which is the realm of fighting and having to win, competitive, having to win at all costs, searching for winning all the time. That'll make me happy if I win. And then there's the, um, the animal realm, which is, um, represents kind of dull um, herd-like behaviour. Now I've got a clear idea what they meant by the animal realm because the, the animal they're depicting are, herd, are, are domesticated animals like sheep and cattle and when you, not, not foxes or wolves, right? Um, and when you think about domesticated animals that they're referring to, they're by being bred by humans over centuries and centuries so that they're They've got no curiosity, they've got no individuality, they're just bred so that they're compliant herd animals. So that's the kind of metaphor that they're trying to evoke through this kind of a a dull herd mentality in the way that we live our life. And then there's the hell realm, which is an over-exaggerated, projected view onto the world that it's frightening and scary. And, par- and being paranoid and frightened and desperately needing to get to safety. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, um, um, the hungry ghost realm, which is where there's this um, thirst that needs to be quenched, but it can never be quenched. Um, can, the, the desire can never be met, so this kind of hungry ghost searching through life. A lot of, lot, of, lot of people in our culture are in that hungry ghost realm and you see, see them often in, in um, therapy and counselling to one degree or another where there's this desperate searching for a relationship, you know, so to be loved by another person and the desperation is so strong there's a kind of a, a pattern of drawing people in and then pushing them away it's like a pattern that happens over and over and over again, which leads to the person feeling more, more abandoned and more, more isolated. And, and what their lesson is, really, is that they need to learn to love themselves in a healthy way rather than trying to get it from the outside right? and going around in those cycles all the time. That's kind of hungry ghost. And we've all been through that, perhaps, to one degree or another. It's not just... Um, it just happens to... Um, more of an extreme for some people rather than others. But when we're entangled in that, that's, that's another realm that we, we wander through. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the final realm in the middle is the human realm, 
And the human realm is kind of like that searching for answers conceptually, intellectually, um, sort of an anxious, neurotic kind of flavour to the searching. Like something's missing and I've got to find it. Something's missing and I've got to find it. So that is the, that's the assumption there in all kinds of searching. It's like, that's the assumption right there from the beginning. Something's missing and I've got to find it. What's missing? Mm-hmm. Um, we go through life, for example, going, um, I'm not good enough. How can I be good enough? I can't cope. How will I cope? What's the answer to coping? I'm not lovable enough. How can I be loved? I don't know what the truth is. I'm all mixed up. How will I find the truth? And they're things that you tell me in Dyson. And what happens? The really wagtail comes to the window and goes tap, tap. That's what's happening every moment of our life is we're searching for something and it's right there. Right, and the willy wag tail goes, it's right here, tap, tap, crack of the, the wood. Mm-hmm. It's always right here. But we're searching elsewhere, as Huckleman says. And to go back to the title of this talk, it's all about discovering the obvious, mm-hmm. which is so obvious. <laughs> but we keep looking elsewhere. Now, searching in a sense is a, is a good thing. When if we look at sort of grasping aversion and apathy, um, there are many people who go through life, they have no curiosity, um, they're just certain of everything, no, no sense of wonder or awe. Um, and uh, it's a kind of it's a kind of a dullness. It's an apathy. They're, they're not searching for anything. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're in the animal realm that we're describing. Like they're sort of just lost in that kind of herd mentality of just doing things. Um, but then, for whatever reason, some human beings, I guess, often through suffering, acute suffering, often triggers it. For some reason, we wake up out of that apathy, that sort of automatic herd-like way of just doing what everyone else does, and we start to question what life is about. So that's good. You know, to be searching is a is a good thing. It's a it's a progression out of that apathy. And um, but then, that's good. We've come out of the apathy and we're searching. But then the manner in which we search, we, wake, we, we, we then go into the, the grasping and aversion. So often a lot of searching then has this grasping kind of quality to it. So it's kind of like it's over-anxious, it's desperate. Mm-hmm. And, and that in itself is not necessarily a, a bad thing. And what is said over and over in the Zen literature is the greater the doubt, 
the greater that need to search, you know, and find the resolution, the greater the realisation. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to depict searching as a bad thing. It's just that it gets that desperate kind of quality to it and it kind of gives us the, the burr under the saddle that drives us, you know, to, to practice and, and to come to resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that we, we get so absorbed in the searching, you know, and, and so perhaps even so anxious about finding the answer that then we miss what's actually here right in front of us. But if we search for long enough, it kind of dissolves, something dissolves and something changes. Um, as a way of trying to illustrate this, I was saying to um, some people before session that with my new um, ear, um, that I have sound but not comprehension at this stage and the homework I have to do to um, get comprehension of understanding what people are saying is to read children's books that are streamed just into that ear. So I learned to pick up the simple words. And, and the book I was given mainly to work on is Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham, <laughs> which apparently a lot of mothers know very well um, from having read it to children many, many times. And I've read it many, many times now to the point where it's kind of like an earworm. <laughs> and, but it's a very interesting story because in the beginning, the narrator of the story says to Sam, who's a cat, uh, would you like green eggs and ham? And, and Sam says, I do not like green, egg, green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam, I am. And then she tries to cajole him and convince him into eating green eggs and ham. Would, would you like them, would you eat them with a mouse? Would you like them in a house? You know? And he keeps on replying, I would not eat them with a mouse. I would not eat them in a house. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam, I am. Would you eat them in a car? You know, would you eat them in the dark? I would not, could not eat them in the dark. I will not eat them, Sam, I am. And so it goes on as a reader to introduce children to words. So the tension builds and builds through the stories. You're trying to get him to eat green eggs and ham. And at the end, the narrator kind of gives up and lets go and says, well, I'll just let you be, you know. I'll just let you be and we'll see what happens. And at that point, Sam eats the green eggs and ham. Right? Uh, I do so like green eggs and ham. I really like them, Sam I am. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it's kind of like, you see, it's kind of like our practice is the kind of the, the tension of pushing for a result, you know, some experience that'll change our life. And we push and we push and we push until we realise there's no point in pushing and we let go and then something happens. Mm-hmm. And not only is it true in the in the in the Dharma realm, um, when you work with families, you see that it's so often the case with um, parents relating, say, to teenagers. You know, and they think that if um, they they're, they're pushing something that they think will be good for their teenager to do, and they push and push and push, and of course the the teenage young person resists. You know, no, I don't don't like that. Not me. And, um, and then you see, eventually, the, the parent gives up trying to change them and the, and the teenager takes it up, right? And I've also been told this is also true of husbands. 
<laughs> Probably true of people generally. Mm-hmm. Push people and they'll refuse, you know. But we want what's good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, to draw to a conclusion, um, T.S. Eliot, the um, American poet, English poet, um, said famously, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Tap, tap, tap on the window pane. And finally, one of the koans in our um, koan collection, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it briefly, is, and leave it with you, is the purpose of doing zazen is to search for our true nature. At this moment, where is your true nature? <laughs>